Well, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 on the Sunday before Christmas. I was actually a little surprised when I looked back over the last uh, seven plus years of being here that I had never preached Luke chapter 2 since I'd been here. And I want to remedy that this morning. Uh, What I want to do, though, is different than we might normally do week in and week out, which is pick apart everything, kind of examine the parts and put it back together. We're going to take this as the narrative I think that Luke intends it to be and understand a little bit of where it came from and why it's framed and spoken the way that it is. Very familiar words, but as much as you can, try to hear them fresh this morning, especially as we go through them in our reading. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. In order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, They made known the statement which had been told them about this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering, rolling them over in her mind or heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. To begin to understand the birth narrative of Jesus, these really familiar words, and I don't know if this is your case, but sometimes the most familiar parts of the Bible hold treasure in plain sight that you don't often see without doing a little deeper dive and a little closer reading. I think it's interesting and important to ask a foundational question. How did Luke know these details? Luke was not one of the 12. He'd not traveled with Jesus. How did Luke find out these details? Well, I think it's fair to say that he heard them from someone who had seen them. Go back to Luke chapter one, verse one. He's talking about his assimilation of material for his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were what? Eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke says, I heard about these events from eyewitnesses. You will find no eyewitness who saw more of the life of Jesus of Nazareth than his mom, than Mary. When you read carefully Luke chapter one and two, it's easy to deduce the only source for the data in Luke's pen was Mary. He knew about these events because Mary had told him about these events. They had crossed paths many times in the book of Acts. No doubt had met her in or around the time of his ascension in Acts chapter one. Mary had a firsthand account of what was happening in these very interesting days. The phenomenon is happening. I think she was the source of the, all the details of Luke chapters one and two. And by the time Luke is writing his gospel and the book of Acts, Mary would have been one of the only few eyewitnesses still alive. Now we back up a little bit and we looked at this a few years ago. Mary's unique views of Jesus, her son and savior were unparalleled by anyone. As a favored teenage mother, she understood Jesus' conception. She was there, obviously, at his birth. She had talked to the shepherds. As an observant, contemplating mother, she had watched Jesus grow from childhood to manhood, had seen him in the temples, lost him in Jerusalem at one point. As an imperfect, sinful mother, she watched Jesus' life and ministry. She watched his miracles. Remember when he rebukes her at the wedding at Cana? says, you're trying to out my identity before I'm ready. As a Christian and hopeful mother, she was there at the resurrection and ascension. But I think what is most interesting to me is as a pierced and wounded mother, she was there watching the cross and the sufferings of Jesus, her son and her savior. I think when we look at Luke chapter two, 
we're hearing Mary's account of the birth of Jesus. Now, in order to understand Luke chapter 2, we have to rewind the tape nine months. Look back at chapter 1, verse 26. Both Matthew and Luke highlight the virginity of Mary. It is a significant part of the Christmas narrative. And though that makes some of us, may make some of us as uh, parents of younger children a little bit uncomfortable, it's interesting that the Bible presents this as something to know and to be discussed. Maybe that talk you need to have can come from talking about this passage with your children one day. Luke chapter one, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. So we stop, we understand there's these two uh, uh, young men, there's young man and young woman who are engaged to be married. You understand that they were likely junior high age. That's when they would become married in that time, 13 to 16 years old. Joseph was of one of the descendants of David. That's significant. That's why he will go to register in, in um, Bethlehem. And the virgin's name, there's a second time we hit that word, the virgin, was Mary. And coming in, this angel says to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. I love this. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering, what kind of salutation was this? In modern language, was, she was totally confused at who this was and what he was saying. I'm favored by who for what? The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, he's already said twice, this is a young virgin woman. And listen to what he says next. Just hear it fresh. This angel says to this 14, 15 year old girl, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, the Savior. And he will be great. And he will be called the son of, not Joseph, the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, Joseph, no, no, no. His father David, and he, your son, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, you're gonna give birth to a king, will have no end. It's quite a stack of data. Now, if you're in Mary's position and you just heard this from an angel who talked about your soon to be son, who's going to be king of Israel, who you're gonna name the savior, you may have a few questions. You know what Mary's first question is? Because of her purity? Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, "Um, how can this be since I am a virgin? Stop right there. That's an interesting question. Why would she not have assumed, oh, this will be the son of Joseph and me in in a year or two? Because this angel had said the, the child will be the son of the most high. 
and indicated that she was about to be pregnant immediately. The angel answered and, and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High, that's the one who will be father, we've already seen that, will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of the One, the Most High, God. And behold, this is a footnote, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, another Christmas miracle, Beyond the years of childbearing, but she becomes pregnant. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. No internet, no Facebook, no email. She didn't know that. But the angel informed her what was happening about 80 miles south. I love verse 38, 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary's response of worship, listen to this. Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel left, departed. We call this the virgin birth, but I think it would be more accurate to call it the virgin conception. Since the conception was the miraculous event in the narrative, and actually the birth seems quite normal. The virginal conception is an enormously theologically significant event that has been so poorly theologically interpreted over the centuries. Some argue that it was necessary to prevent Jesus from having a sinful nature. In other words, he couldn't have had a human father or he wouldn't have had a sinful or he would have had a sinful nature. But that forgets that he did have a sinful mother. Neither does the Bible tell us how this virginal conception happened. There are two options. Some say God provided uh, the sperm cell for Mary's egg, but how then could Jesus have avoided Mary's sin nature if that's the case? The Roman Catholic answer, by the way, is to say, well, Mary didn't have a sin nature. She was immaculately conceived, miraculously conceived herself. Which begs the question, well, what about Mary's mom? And you, you got to stop somewhere. Second question or option has been presented. says, well, no, God created a fertilized embryo and put it in Mary. But that's a challenge because then we would, we would have questions about whether Jesus was truly man and truly human. So what do we deduce about the humanity and divinity of Jesus? What is clear in the texts of Matthew and Luke is that the virginal conception is, drumroll, a mystery. And the mystery points to God doing what only God can do. Nothing is impossible with God. This whole situation is completely impossible. A virgin doesn't conceive. But the angel said, nothing is impossible with God. The mystery is that God is mysterious in the incarnation. Please be careful to treat the Bible and theological nuances like this, like a mystery novel that needs to be solved. But we gotta figure this out because there's no blood transfer between the placenta and the mother. I've heard all sorts. No, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Instead of trying to understand all the nuances, she was pure and holy and above reproach and a virgin. And God said, I am going to cause you to become 
pregnant with my son. The virginal conception then is an undisclosed, mysterious way that God brought together humanity and divinity in the person of Jesus. That's what 135 says. The Holy Spirit, this is the only explanation we get. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now that's nine months earlier. Fast forward nine months. Now we're in Luke chapter two. Back to Luke two. A decree goes out and that day Caesar Augustus was ruling and reigning and he wants a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. We look at censuses today of, of, of drawing voting lines and who votes in what county and what city has the biggest population. The census in those days was to make sure that they knew who you were so you were paying taxes. Very simple. You had to go back to the place where your family was from. That's significant because as we read later, Joseph and Mary go back to Bethlehem which is their lineage, and that's the house of David, and that has a special significance we'll see in a moment from Micah. By the way, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Lots of historical debate about this. I don't wanna take the time to, to take you through all of that, those weeds right now, except to say some people say, well, Quirinius was not a governor until uh, uh, maybe 10 years after um, Jesus, and um, instead of, trying to do all that explaining away, just know that you can translate the Greek of this. A census was taken uh, while, uh, uh, after Quirinius was governor of Syria. No historical problem there. Verse three, everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And now we find out Joseph went up from Galilee, which is interesting. If you look at a map, Joseph went south. But everywhere in Israel that goes to Jerusalem, whether it's from the south or the north or the east or the west, everyone goes up to Jerusalem. Why? It was Mount Moriah. It was the highest place in that area. And so from whichever direction you came, you went up, you ascended. We have the Psalms of Ascents where people were climbing toward Jerusalem that it was always up that you went to. He went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, that's where he'd been living, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, the the city of bread, the house of bread, because he was from the house and family of David in order to register with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now that is, that in the first century to read that sentence would have been a shock and a scandal. They weren't married with a child, pregnant with a child. They were engaged and she was pregnant. Bethlehem, as I said a moment ago, is significant. The birthplace of David is where David grew up. Micah says in Micah 5.2, but as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. I've never talked to a Jewish friend who had an interpretation of that text. Someone is going to be born from Jerusalem, excuse me, from uh, Bethlehem, just a few miles south of Jerusalem, whose lineage, whose heritage is eternal. So Joseph and Mary, great with child, 
in her ninth month go to Bethlehem to account for themselves to no doubt pay for taxes and to be registered for the census. The census is significant. If everyone was going to their own town to register, Bethlehem, if you've been there, uh, you, you see it's, it's a kind of a blustering little city and it's lots of activity. Bethlehem at this time was just like an offshoot from Jerusalem. It was just a little village, not much. If so many people were crowding that city to come and register for the census, there might be a problem finding a place to stay. Verse 6 is so under, understated. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Labor begins. The water breaks. They need a place to give birth to this child. And we find out with no fanfare between 6 and 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in... We call them swaddling cloths or cloths. I, I learned this when I had uh, three little babies that I didn't know before. Ladies, please exercise some grace with me. I didn't know that. They, I remember coming in with our, our oldest and uh, they, they handed me Luke and they had wrapped him up tied her in the banjo string with this blanket thing. And I, I remember thinking, you're gonna squeeze the life out of him. I mean, they, they flipped and wrapped and, and they gave him to me. That's the idea. That's actually the word here. A tight wrapped swaddling cloth. And laid him in a feeding trough, a manger. Because there was no room for them in the end. This is, this is a part of the Christmas lore that might need some footnotes for you. I've seen so much speculation. I've seen this, uh, 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 this innkeeper as this mean man who, who forced them out. I've seen the innkeeper in a wonderful, uh, fictitious, but I think very well-framed poem by John Piper that talks about this loving innkeeper. Katalema is the Greek word. It just means a room. There, were no room for the, there was no room for them in the extra room is what it is. When Luke does refer to a hotel, kind of a, a place that you would rent, he uses a different word in chapter 10, verse 34, pandokion, completely different situation. What Luke is describing here is most likely a guest room in a private residence, perhaps a relative. Scholars tell us they probably were going to stay with someone they knew and got there and the room was taken. <laughs> there was no... Uh, uh, a way to advance book a room on the internet. You couldn't make a phone call to say, is the room open? You couldn't make a reservation. You showed up and you saw, by the way, that's why hospitality was so important in the early church. One reason it was. Due to the census, the small village was no doubt packed, booked, overbooked, according to Mark Strauss, quote, the most likely scenario is that Joseph and Mary were staying with relatives or friends and because of the crowded conditions, were forced to a place reserved for animals. This could have been a lower level stall attached to the living quarters of a home or as some ancient traditions suggest, a cave used as a shelter for animals. 
She wraps him in tight swaddling cloths, would give him warmth and security. Just a sign of care, tenderness. Then the scene shifts. And if this came from Mary, you'll understand why it shifted. In the same region, there was just a few miles between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and there was pasteurized land in between their hills, rolling hills, where uh, shepherds would have their, their flocks graze. In the same region were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Not an unusual thing for shepherds to stay out with a flock by night, but certainly a measure of security with so many people coming to register and so many people coming and going between Jerusalem and Bethlehem on that main route that would have gone there. It makes sense that they would have been out watching, flock, watching their flocks by night. It's one of the most surprising parts of the nativity narrative, though, to me. These were blue-collar men. We've said this before. Shepherds in the ancient Near East were cowboys. They were men's men. They were the, the staple of Israel's sacrificial system. Probably she, uh, the, the goats and sheep they were, they were caring for would have been sold for the sacrificial system right outside of Jerusalem. Many shepherds in that area. These were men of relatively little stature in society. In other words, if... Anyone was expected to be given the honor and the special invitation of the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. Be the first visitors to see the God-man, the first visitors to see God in flesh, the, the combination of humanity and deity. If you and I were creating that guest list, we probably wouldn't have included them first. The first visitors to the Lord Jesus were a cohort of shepherds. I think this is really interesting too. The motif of shepherding in the Old and New Testament. I don't think this is by accident that he invited God through the angel, invited these men to see the great shepherd first. Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Hebrews 13, 20, the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, an angel of the Lord, the Greek is inter interesting, suddenly stood before them, basically appeared. Poof, There. No computer-generated graphics here. They're out shepherding their sheep. Bam, there's this man standing there, an angel. Suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone. That's a significant word. It was a little bright light. Doxa, glory is doxa in the Greek. It's, it's often translated brilliance. In a non-religious sense, it was often referred to as the sun, the, the glory of the sun, the light, the brilliance of the sun. The glory of the Lord shone, bright lighted all around them, and they were terribly frightened. Imagine being in, in dark. There, there were no street lights. They're out on the hills. 
and it lights up like day and there's a man standing there with all of this light all around them. It's incredible. He wasn't hovering in the sky as a lot of the nativity scenes say. He's gonna fly in a minute, by the way. Just hold on to that thought. Angels solicited fear and terror when they were encountered in both testaments. Both Mary and Joseph, when Joseph was, was uh, revealed uh, uh, that he was going to have this pregnant, engaged um, fiancé and that he should keep her. And when Mary found the shepherd, she found the, uh, the uh, angel, both responses were they were afraid. John sees the angel in Revelation 1. He's afraid. Fear. So <laughs> much as we have these cute little precious moment angels sitting around the house and hanging on the Christmas tree. If you had saw, seen an angel, it would have been a masculine angel with bright light and you would have fallen to the ground terrified. It's night, verse nine tells us. The glory now lights up every area, all, the area around them. And the angel says in verse 10, verse 9, they were terribly frightened. Verse 10, the angel has to calm the situation. And the first thing he says is, don't be afraid. You're not in trouble. One of the most prevalent things angels say to people when they meet is don't be afraid. Just study that in both Testaments. Same thing is told to Mary in chapter 1, verse 30. Let me tell you why. Don't be afraid. For behold, and as we've said over and over, when you see behold in the Bible, that's, that the vernacular is like saying, guess what? Guess what? I bring you good news. Stop right there. It's interesting how translators treat the word euangelium. It's most often translated as the word, who knows, gospel. That's the word here. Behold, I bring you the gospel. The good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Why is it good news? Verse 11, for today, in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I understand that applies to you. I understand that applies to me. But be a blue-collar cowboy shepherd out taking care of your sheep. An angel shows up. There's light everywhere. And this angel says, a Savior has been born for you. Take the personal nature of that. Why a Savior? If I said to you today, if I walked up afterwards... Be careful, I'll save you right now. You would first say, from what? The angel spoke with Joseph and answered the question in Matthew 1, She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, which is the Hebrew Joshua, which means Savior. For he, here's the Savior, he will save his people from their, what? Sins. This is a gospel salvific moment. It's good news. I'm bringing you the gospel of good news with great joy because your sins can be paid for by this little one born up on the hill in Bethlehem. This was no ordinary child. 
Isaiah 9, we read it last week, verse 6. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, that the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. How's that for divinity? Eternal Father, or actually Father of Eternity. Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. All goes back to the throne of David, which will be established from the city of David, which is exactly why Joseph of the line of David, Mary of the line of David, come back to Bethlehem to register. And I just wonder, I just wonder sometimes, I don't have any evidence, but as she was getting nearer to her, her um, delivery, if she may have known of Micah 5, read Luke 1 and 2. She knew a lot about what was going to happen. I would not be surprised if when we have a chat with Mary in heaven, she knew I've got to get this child to be born in the city of David because that's the prophecy. Verse 12. Now, I, I, I hate disturbing uh, uh, nativity scenes and manger sets, but... This will be a sign for you. You, the shepherds, will find the babe wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. The sign for the shepherds was where the baby lay. It was not the star. That was the sign for who? The Magi two years later. So I know that the movies and every, the shepherds are out and they see the same star as the Magi and they all converge at the really good drama and not good Bible knowledge. They didn't go looking for the star in Bethlehem. The shepherds didn't. The Magi did. The shepherds went looking for what? A baby laying in a feeding trough. The humility is over and understated. The manger would be the clue for knowing who the Messiah was. Do you see the humility of that? How will we know who this great king is? Uh, it's the one in the place where the animals just ate this afternoon. More on that in a moment. Here we find our word again. Suddenly, it gets even more freaky for these guys, more scary, more frightening. Suddenly there appeared with that angel a multitude. Literally, it means thousands of angels. Praising God and saying, no, the angels did not sing here. There's a different Greek word for that that they used in Revelation 5 where they did sing. But just a footnote, there's no reason to stop singing about angels singing the poetic license of that is fine. I don't think all of the angels are elbowing each other in heaven saying they got it wrong. <laughs> Just sing and enjoy the praise. But know that they really said. This army of angels, thousands of angels suddenly appeared. Can you imagine the glory? If the glory came, of the glory of the Lord came with one, imagine these, these shepherds. It's like day. It's like the sun is all around them. 
This would have been an overwhelming witness on that Judean hillside. These shepherds were speaking with one, then suddenly, boom, thousands. And they were all saying something. What were they saying? Glory to God, glory to God in the highest. Why would they say glory to God in the highest? They moved from heaven to earth. Look at this. And on earth, glory to God in the highest. That was imagery of God in heaven above the earth, transcendent. And then they go straight to eminence. And on earth, peace among men. Don't miss the last part. With whom he is pleased. I know we sing and hear, we hear people say, even from a secular perspective, that Christmas brought peace. Christmas did not bring peace except to those who received the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, verse 15 is interesting and odd. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven. Let me translate that for you from the original. When the angels had gone up away from them into the sky. I don't know how this worked, but the text gives us every indication that there were thousands of angels and then they just took flight and went to heaven. Yes, I take that as historical fact. I take that as absolute reality, independent of scientific explanation. They flew in the sky, they disappeared. Now, what's interesting to notice here is the shepherd's discussion after that. If you or I had seen a thousand angels around with all this light, the night turns to day and we're talking to this angel and they had gone in heaven and disappeared, what conversation might we have? Did you see that? Did you hear what he sounded like? What he was dressed in, the white, the brilliance... Look at what they say. The shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then. Do you think they got the message? And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Wow, is their theology there. Who had made known this to the shepherds? The angels. They saw straight through the angels to them being a messenger of God. When the angels had this glory, they said the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. They understood that these angels were messengers of the Most High Himself of God. And they said, let's go straight there. Let's go straight there. It had to be within a mile or two. Saw the glory as coming from the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. Focus on Him. This is a divine event. What you're about to witness is supernatural and can be attributed to God Almighty. I love verse 16, so understated. So they came in a hurry. Can you imagine? I think they probably left the sheeps and the goats and they ran. How would they find, how would they possibly find in just a little village, probably only a half mile by a half mile in this day. 
How will they find him? Well, they didn't have to knock on many doors. It was obviously in a place exposed to the elements where the animals had access to this, what? Manger. Where are the animals? Where are they eating? That's where they would look for the king of the earth. King of eternity. They came in a hurry, found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby, don't miss this, as he lay where? In the manger. We're not told how they found the baby. It wasn't the star, we know that. Um, There was no wise men there. There was no star there yet. The text tells us that the sign of the birth of the Savior was that he would be wrapped in cloths, lying in a, a feeding trough for animals. Verse 17, we find out what was going on in their hearts. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Again, I think that the likely source of this is Mary. Can you imagine Mary? It's time to come. We've got to find a place. They found this place where animals had been feeding in a cave, in an understall, under a house. She gives birth. And then these angels, these uh, shepherds rather, just show up. You're not going to believe what we just heard about him. And Mary is going, let me ask you, you think Mary was surprised by that? Turn back one page. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, who was in her sixth month a miracle, as I said, that she would be pregnant with John the Baptist. And in chapter one, verse 46, how much did Mary understand about this little one she was carrying? She tells Elizabeth this exclamation about herself, her response, and this child that we call the Magnificat, the, the song, the, the, uh, the, the, the praise poem. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his slave. That's her. For behold, from this time to all generations will count me as blessed. You think she understood that who she was carrying was special? For the mighty one has done great things for me and, his, and holy is his name. These are quotes from Psalms and the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant. We don't have time to drill down on that right now. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm, scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of his heart. I just think of a junior high girl having this much scripture on the tip of her tongue to be able to just talk about. He's brought down rulers from their houses and exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. And as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. By the way, Mary stays another three months and then comes home. Was Mary clued in to... What was happening? By the way, how do we get that much detail about what she said to Elizabeth, likely alone? Well, probably from her to Luke. So the the shepherds come there. They say, let me tell you what happened in the field, what we saw and what we heard and what they said about this child. 
Verse 18 tells us that these uh, shepherds were good early evangelists. All who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. The first evangelists were these blue-collar men who couldn't wait to tell everyone that the Messiah had been born. Mary and Joseph, not the only ones who heard about this angelic affirmation of the baby Jesus. Apparently, these shepherds were quick to tell everyone the good news or the the gospel, the good news of God. Verse 19, very significant. But Mary stored up, treasured. She kept a spiritual heart journal of all these things Pondering them in her heart. The word pondering means rolling them over and over, rehearsing them, re- reviewing them, collating them, thinking about scripture and the events and the angels and the shepherds and putting it all together. Joseph's dream. Verse 19 is a stop and pause. No person had the panoramic view of Jesus like his mother did. His conception, his birth, his growth, his childhood, his manhood, his life, his ministry, his miracles, his suffering and death, his resurrection, and his ascension. She was there for it all. So it makes sense to us, based on verse 19, that Mary is the likely source for Luke as he pens these events. Was Mary surprised by that information? No. I think she was pleased by it, amazed by it, corroborated by it. Verse 20, so the shepherds went back, glorifying God, praising God for all they had heard and seen. And the idea is they'd heard from the angel, even though they'd seen a lot, that was what they heard. What they had seen was the child himself in the manger, just as had been told them. What's the takeaway from this? What do, how do you walk away and, 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 and do something with this? Well, all biblical application is either knowing something better or different and doing something better or different. That's what application is. That's what implications are. I think the shepherds give us the paradigm and the pattern for what we're to do with this. They went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen that we just heard and, and saw. Do we glorify and praise God for the amazing, amazing reality, the truthful facts of his birth? We also find out that they reported what they, they, they told anyone who would listen what they had seen. We know the truth of the good news of the gospel. Not only his birth, but also his death and his resurrection, his ascension and his teachings in the New Testament. Are we faithful like the shepherds to go and report to tell anyone who will sit still long enough to hear what we know of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Do we understand and have we embraced Jesus as he's presented to Joseph and to shepherds and ultimately to Mary as the savior from sin?
I just want to encourage you. This, there, there is no better season for anyone to contemplate the health of their soul and their state of their eternity than now. To remember this is why he came as the Savior who would ultimately die for the sins of anyone who would believe. When a believer comes to the manger, we come to adore him, right? We use the word adore probably wrongly, just only for the baby is adorable and it's this cute word. Adore means to give your affections to and toward. Because when we come to the manger, we find God in a manger. Think about that. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is he man? Absolutely. The shepherds saw God lying in swaddling clothes, lying in an animal feeding trough. Does that not surprise you about our God? No trumpets, no fanfare, no standing ovation, no, no, no coliseum for him to be paraded into. Philippians 2, we read it earlier, he comes humbly. What was his name? Matthew tells us, you will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means, say it with me, God with us. Boy, I hope that you understand the offer that's in that. I know most of you and have confidence that you know Christ. There are some I don't. If you don't, if you don't understand, if you don't understand the gift of God, of his son, to be born, to live a perfect life, and to die for your sin. Pause, please, I beg you, pause and stop and think this is not just a nice story for a once a year celebration and season. This is, this is your opportunity to see him as the savior of your soul, both now in time and in eternity forever. If you will repent of your sins, Trust him, run to his cross. He died a cruel, horrific, abandoned death, abandoned by God the Father and by man so that he could die for the wrath of God on him and in our place for us. And please don't dismiss that as just a nice story for Christmas and Easter. It's your only hope. It's your only hope for now and in time and for eternity in heaven.